What's up, patrons? John and I are here with the first installment of our series on Reinhardt Kosolek's Futures Past on the Semantics of Historical Time. This one, I think we were sort of like scouting this one out. I'm not super familiar with Kosolek. I forgot even how this was recommended, but we were looking at parts of his work and we were like, okay, this guy seems important to our idea of figuring out what historical time means or is in order to understand our own moment. And that is his project. So we're going to get into this. Just before we start doing that, I just want to say that this was a very enjoyable reading that helped me understand basically what you and I hope to do with Exhaust and have been trying to do (laughs) with Exhaust. It was way more readable than I was expecting going in, in terms of just like how easy it was to read. Yeah. Or like, was it going to be a slog Mm -hmm. or was it going to be kind of exciting? And it was like actually kind of exciting the whole way through, like no parts really felt like they dragged on. Mm -hmm. And it might owe it to the fact that this is like a book of essays rather than a book um, as such. So call it. So these really, I don't know how it's very, well, it has this, yeah, and it has this literary flair to it. Right, right. Like there's, by the end of the our reading, we did the first 25 pages for today. And there is some really nice continuity between a painting we'll talk about by Altdorfer and Alexander's Battle of Issus and then Napoleon at the end. And I was very impressed by the deafness with which, which he did that and uh, yeah. didn't reveal any, and what he was going to do throughout. So... I think we're going to open up by talking about like who Kosolek is based on what little we know and, and what this project is, as he describes it in his preface. So he's apparently hugely influential in Germany and Europe on things like the epistemology of history, conceptions of history, right? They're these own like subdivisions. He's like big in like anthropology and stuff as well. He pulls from Heidegger, Schmidt, and a few other people. I can definitely, I'm very familiar with Schmidt, so I will point out where I see some of that happening in here. And I would say that he is a very provocative thinker that's trying to get at the roots of what we're doing when we're trying to do history. I would agree with that assessment pretty wholeheartedly. I've never like met anyone who's read him or heard of him. I think Mike found him kind of randomly and we've this is a book we've both like mentioned would be cool to read for like 10 years and just never did. So this was <laughs> yeah. kind of like finally the opportunity to do yeah. that. In the same way that we were spoiling to read progress, <laughs> the true and only heaven. <laughs> we finally did it. Um, not something I would have done on my own probably. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. And hugely rewarding. And by the way, Kosolov's project, I think, helped me understand what makes Lash so unique. And maybe we'll talk about that at some point here. So in the preface typical for prefatory material he wants to lay out like what major question is he asking how's he going to go about answering it what are some of his hypotheses so what he points out at the top is that what we call historical time we don't really think about this reminds me of the opening of being in time where there is the problem of being itself and like what we really mean by that he's doing the same thing with historical time i think and it's clear he has like some ideas of what he means by historical time and it's not chronology because while all of those things might be important, 
they're not giving us a sense of, and this is his phrase, the conditioning of our conceptions of time, which has several components, a social and political action, human beings who are finite, suffering, have stakes and desires, and then their institutions and their orgs. And then he says this very mysterious phrase, all of these the things I listed, have definite internalized forms of conduct, each with a peculiar temporal rhythm, which I took to mean all of these have limits, customs, and a certain type of boundedness that comes with being mortal beings. Yeah, I do think having had any like experience with Heidegger or some Heidegger devotee or something is really helpful Mm -hmm. because I kind of immediately got what was going on Mm-hmm. because so much of it throughout Heidegger's career is like his concern with like understanding the way in which all of the qualitative aspects of being have been completely shorn from the way we talk about and understand our experiences ever since Descartes, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, the like being as Warhandenheit kind of understanding just totally ripping away like something deeper and more like embodied or something actualized versus Mm -hmm. this sort of theoretical like dissection understanding of the world of life of things which you could almost say there's a similarity with that in bear chronology versus this more like this one guy always used an example i loved where it was like there's a hill with a tree Mm -hmm. and you can think of it like that but you could also say like that's a place where like a theophany happened in your life. And like, you had a completely new under, you're like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's like a flowering and unveiling mm-hmm. and that kind of thing is really difficult to talk about. I think in regular language, it's kind of, I think it's why Heidegger got so interested in Zen people because they were always about the fact that language was insufficient to discussing reality on a certain level. And so you get these really poetic descriptions of things that are gesturing towards something that mm-hmm. can't be like definitely marked by some kind of, you know, statement or proposition. Mm-hmm. And so like, I started seeing that immediately when he was trying to say like time has these other qualities and times can be different from other times because of these qualitative differences. Like mm-hmm. time is not one thing always. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. So the way I interpreted this is that this is going to be a study of the idea of experienced contingency. That is the phrase I chose to describe what I think is happening here. And John, that speaks to some of what you're saying. So if we take the tree and hill idea and think of it as somebody acting in the social and political world, then it's not just we passed this bill in our local legislature. It is a place where victories were experienced, defeats were experienced, a certain reorganization of the institution and a type of repatterning of our civic life took place all within a realm of rules and constraints and expectations shared and not what is happening in our lives. So so that's, I think, what's happening here. And the major question, he says, is how in a given present are the temporal dimensions of a past and future related? And I mean, listeners of the show, of course, know that that is also our question. <laughs> 
our question uh, of why does nothing feel possible, I we have assumed that that has something to do with the accretions of the past and how they prevail upon our experience of the present and how that contours what we think we can make of our future. Yeah, what he wrote following that, where he also gives another set of opposed terms, there's past and future, but he also says anthropologically, you could call it experience and expectation, which I thought was highly suggestive. Yeah. Um, And he says in differentiating those two things, it's possible to grasp something like historical time Mm-hmm. It is certainly a biologically determined human characteristic that with increasing age, the relation of experience and expectation changes, whether through the increase of the one and the decline of the other, through the one compensating for the other, or through the opening of previously unperceived interior or metaphysical worlds that help relativize the finitude of personal life. But it is also in the succession of historical generations that the re- relation of past and future has clearly altered which mm-hmm. I guess is sort of like, that's what this whole thing seems to be then about. Mm-hmm. It's like how, what, what happened? What does this mean? Yeah, that's sort of his hypothesis too. And differentiating past and future experience and expectation, we can get at what historical time means. He also has sort of a sub hypothesis that I noticed. Maybe it's more like a working assumption, but that the novelty of temporar- temporality increases our demands on the future. And I would say that that's an encapsulation of what I think Koselec means by the uh, modern experience, mm-hmm. where there is an increase of novel experiences, moments, new things seem to be happening all the time. And because those arrive at us like a bevy of choices with their own decision trees or whatever, there is an increasing demand on what we expect out of the future simply because the present is so rich with choices. Now, that's we go interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just so, gonna say, I didn't actually think of it that way. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's the way that, that I'm thinking of it when I'm trying to figure out like why a feeling of temporality or a deep self-consciousness of the sense of being within time would increase demands in the future. And that's, that's what I could come up with. So he's going to do this by um, looking at the semantics of central concepts of history. That's his method. And that is going to be ordered in terms of what I call dimensionality and then constitutional concepts and then classification concepts and looking at like astronomic or general scientific or a philosophy of historical processes, ways of looking at that. So that's the project of this collection of essays. This is what he's going to get at in future's past. And this stuff is like old, which kind of shocked me. This is like yeah. from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, he's from the 60s and 70s. He really hasn't been um, remarked on in the English-speaking world. Interestingly, I was in La Jolla for a weekend and went to a nice little bookstore there and found like an old used Cambridge edition of this book. And I was sort of like shocked to discover it there, you know, because the only person that had anything to say about us endeavoring on this was a repeat guest on the show, Luke Thompson. Who was like, oh, it's sick, you're doing Koselec. And I was like, of course, Luke knows who Koselec. But yeah, otherwise, there's very few and far between. So I have a feeling that like McIntyre, like Matt, like uh, Lash, he will become a sort of uh, patron saint or overweening figure on how we think on this show. So now we get into the first, the first chapter, which is uh, really cool. 
I thought, part one on the relation of past and future in modern history. And we'll be taking a look at just the first section of that, which is modernity and the planes of historicity, which uh, I think is actually conveyed in the text far more simply than that title would suggest. Yeah, (laughs) the reverse of what you would expect. Yeah, I was like, I looked at it and I was like, ah, fuck, here we go. And then I was reading it and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, (laughs) this isn't written that Germanically. Yeah, so (laughs) how do we want to do this? Do we want to talk about the Altdorfer painting or did you want to bust out the book of Daniel? Yeah, it's worth just going with the book. Okay. And for all the listeners, you might want to go ahead and just Google Altdorfer's I'll actually Alexander. Okay, I'll yeah, include yeah. that image in the show notes so people can go contemplate it. Yeah, um, it's it's worth just staring at while you think about this because it's you know it's worth looking at. Yeah, it's a beautiful painting. It's it's uh, striking in its complexity. So it's um, a painting done by Altdorfer, who was a German painter. It was done. When was this? Does he say this painting was? He just mentions that in 1528, Duke William IV of Bavaria ordered it. Yeah. Uh, So at some point after that, it's completed. Yeah. So 16th century, it is called the Battle of Alexander. Um, It's the Battle of Issus, where he meets, oh my God, whose forces does he meet? Darius' forces. Yeah. You want to go? Okay. So, uh, so, So sorry, there's a lot to unpack here with this thing. So... Why does it begin with this painting? Well, he wants to look at, first of all, the painting has important content in it. First of all, the battalions that you see within it sometimes have the number of dead inscribed on their flag. It is like a historical document that captures what is seen as almost a preordained or prophetic moment in the history of what will end up becoming the Holy Roman Empire and its creation. And it has all sorts of religious significance on top of that. You'll see in the upper left, the moon, in the lower right, the sun rising, thus indicating the forces of light and dark that are at play within this. And at this time, I think it's Austria is at war with the Turks. And so there is an inscription of the present onto this image of the past. And that is what Kosolek wants to take a closer look at. So there's these uh, implicit understandings of history embedded in the way this painting is constructed, why it's commissioned, and when it's painted. And one of those is the sameness of history. And I mean that in terms of repeatability, that one could see because armaments had not really changed that much since Alexander and Darius went to war with each other, that there was a continuity, almost a return that's uh, built into the experience of time 